ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. South Australia could soon become the next state to fully decriminalise prostitution or sex work. The advocates of full decriminalisation have many allies in Parliament, especially in the Labor and Green parties. But one survivor of this trade is urging politicians to rethink their support for legalisation. Rose Hunter spent a decade in the sex industry. She's the author of the book Body Shell Girl. And this week, Rose wrote an open letter to South Australian MPs on the ABC Religion and Ethics website. Now, there's nothing explicit in this conversation, but there is one reference to sexual assault. It was 10 years all up, which still shocks me uh, to say these days. It seems like a long time. It wasn't my intention, however. Definitely when I first got into the industry, it was supposed to be a uh, temporary fix, as I called it, to pay my rent. And that was in Canada. My uh, experience in the industry was mostly in Canada. I come from a middle-class family, but I was in the position of having no money. (laughs) So my story is a bit different from uh, some others in the industry in that I did come from a middle-class background, as I mentioned. I wasn't underage. I started at the ripe old age of 25, and I had a BA degree before I started in the industry. So I had a lot of these comparative advantages. However, I had a lot of uh, emotional problems. We'd call them mental health issues these days, I guess, including a particularly bad eating disorder and quite a few issues going on. I left Australia. I gathered together the money that I had for a ticket out of Australia to Canada on a year's working visa where I hoped to sort of get away from myself. And when I got there, I got a a retail job, as was my intention, but then I lost that job. And then I was faced with paying rent and I had no money to pay it with. So that was the background. How hard was it, Rose, to exit prostitution? So extremely hard for me. (laughs) That was my experience. The reasons why it was extremely hard to get out That was actually why I wrote the book, because for a long time I felt actually baffled as to why I had stayed in it for so long. I was pretty dissociated from my own experience and I felt like I really couldn't work it out. That was sort of the impetus to write the book, to work out what happened, like why did I stay in this industry for 10 years? certainly wasn't because I I liked it so much. As I mentioned, I had all these issues, including some trauma going into the industry. And one thing that happened early on in, in the industry that I uh, mentioned in the article was being raped in a, in a brothel, as well as the feeling that that wasn't so far different to the rest of the experience in that mm. brothel. And so I became traumatised by the industry, not just that rape, the everyday reality of the industry is traumatising. And so you get in sort of a vicious cycle. Meanwhile, the gaps in your resume don't get any better. My self-worth, which was never too good to begin with, took a further dive. And I got in the position where I really didn't think that I could do anything else. Then I became an alcoholic. Then I became addicted to uh, sedatives. So it just became this mess of problems, you know, and every one of those problems feeds onto itself and makes you more likely to go back into the industry. When you hear this 
slogan, I guess it is, from advocates of fully legalised prostitution that, quote, we need rights, not rescue. What do you think? Well, I needed rescue. <laughs> I know that's not a popular thing to say these days. Yeah, well, why um, isn't it popular? Certainly, if you'd come to me at the time and said, would you like rescuing? I probably wouldn't have taken too kindly to that. But there's this push to act as though there are no harms to women and girls in this industry, which I hope my article went some way towards showing that is not the case. I think when most people think about this issue and think about what is realistically involved in working in a brothel, which I won't go into the details here, but listeners can imagine or they can find it in my article, most people would say, well, that sounds pretty harmful, just on a sort of common sense level. Mm. But then we have these messages that we're being fed, supported a lot of the time by cherry-picking a woman in the industry who is doing very well and highlighting that story as though it's typical when it's really an exceptional story and for the vast majority of women, it's a, a trauma industry, I describe it as. Yeah. Surely, though, Rose, there are women who choose sex work or prostitution quite freely. I mean, I'm quite sure that I've read stories of the 30-something woman who's doing escort work while completing her PhD. She's telling us how empowered she is. I'm pretty sure I've read stories like that. I didn't meet anyone uh, like that in my uh, 10 years in the industry. I can say that. Certainly, there are some women who have more choice within this industry for various reasons, like maybe they have another form of income as well and they can pick and choose their uh, sex buyers, which would certainly lessen the trauma. So these women undoubtedly exist, but I would say they're a very small minority. And the problem is the reality of the industry is so much different to the majority of the women in it. So it really does a disservice and is really inaccurate to highlight these stories, even though they undoubtedly make uh, for sexier sort of content. Doesn't the full decriminalisation of prostitution make it safer? At least according to the advocates, they say that sex workers are no longer ashamed, so they'll go to the police if their rights are violated. Because of the nature of this work, in inverted commas, or unacceptable work, you could call it, this work is by nature unsafe and there really isn't anything that decriminalisation of it can do to make it safer. If you do think about what's involved, there is the possibility for disease that is present and it's decriminalisation can't remove that. When you look at the levels of PTSD, for instance, in women in the sex industry, there's been a number of studies on this and they're really unacceptably high. Um, well, yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder, there's actually a really quite shocking comparison. Quite a few studies compare it to uh, combat veterans and there was actually a piece at the uh, conversation a few years back that says a sex worker and a soldier walk into a therapist's office 
who has more chance of having PTSD? It's some title like that. And of course, the answer is the sex worker by quite a wide margin, according to that article. You have to be a bit careful because some of these studies are done with uh, street workers and some of them are done with in-house workers and there may be a difference in trauma levels between those two groups. But it does seem overwhelming that uh, whatever percentage we affix to it, that it's high and it's unacceptable. Why is it so hard, Rose, to get your voice and voices like your, yours heard in this debate because the trajectory in this country is very much towards full decriminalisation. New South Wales, Victoria, I think Queensland's heading that way. There's certainly a proposal in South Australia, which is what prompted you to write this piece. Why is it so hard for you to get your voice heard? That's one answer contained in your question. The trajectory is, is heading towards full decriminalisation. And they don't want to talk to survivors because we might say something that might question the value of uh, that trajectory. I mean, mostly what I get told when I get told to be quiet is that I'm no longer in the industry, so these laws don't affect me anymore. That was part of the reason I wanted to write my article too, to say survivors have a voice and experience that should be heard and we listen to survivors regarding a wide range of issues, for instance, domestic abuse survivors. You don't have to currently be in a violent relationship to have an opinion about domestic violence. And the other reason, which I think is really, really important, is uh, if you had asked me back in the day when I was in the industry, hey, Rose, is this industry okay with you? I probably would have said, yeah, it's fine. It's how I'm getting my money. You know, <laughs> I would have said something along the lines. I wasn't going to tell you it was empowering or anything like that because it clearly wasn't. But I would have probably just said, it's all right. What else was I going to do? What else was I going to say? And also when you're in the middle of a trauma situation, and this is true for a, a wide variety of trauma, including domestic abuse survivors and survivors of childhood abuse, it's very, very difficult to see the whole picture when you're in that situation. And often people who are in trauma situations, in abuse situations, they sort of realise years later that they were even in one or how bad it was, you know. Mm. And that was the case for me. When it's up close, when it's in your face every day, it's very difficult to see accurately. So I believe that's the survivor perspective, that we can offer some perspective on the situation. In your essay, Rose, you describe people who frankly don't seem to be very sympathetic to your pain. What sort of things did they say to you, almost dismissively, mm. <laughs> about the nature of the work that you were doing and the anguish that was associated with it in your case? One of the things that I have noticed since I came out with this story is a certain level of callousness towards my experiences, I'm not saying, oh, well, people should have this and that empathy for me or anything like that, but I do find it interesting and I find it interesting that it comes particularly from the left and a comment that I get quite often which blows my mind <laughs> on a regular basis is some comment like, oh, well, I guess the industry must have been like working at Coles. Yeah, and it hasn't just happened once. It's quite shocking. I, I sort of know what I would like to say to that, maybe like, well, if, if you don't know the difference, I'm sure I can't tell you. 
But I think that analysis comes from people saying, oh, well, we're analysing it as a a service industry position now. So they're making this comparison. And just because it might have some small thing in common, like it involves customer service, they're saying there must be some large similarities between Mm. the two things, which seems to me a very extraordinary claim to make. You support something called the Nordic model, which actually does decriminalise partially the sex industry. It doesn't make a criminal of the woman or in some cases the man who is selling sex. What does it do? As you said, it's a partial decriminalisation model rather than full decriminalisation. The sex seller, whatever gender they may be, is decriminalised and the sex buyer is held accountable, various penalties, whether they be fines or however it's worked out. And also criminalised are uh, pimps. And the other important thing that the Nordic model does is it offers what they call exit services for people, again, mostly women, because this industry is heavily gendered. Most sex sellers are women and girls and most sex buyers are men offering exit services to the mostly women. And that's a really important aspect of the model. It would have meant a lot to me if I ever saw an exit service during my time in the industry. It would have given me the message, I think, that um, maybe I, I was deserving of such a thing, you know, and, and that this wasn't all okay, which was sort of all I heard in the popular culture, you know, that it was my choice so um, and it was all okay. You do quote in your essay the British feminist uh, Julie Bindel. She says, Abolitionists have a goal to bring about an end to the global sex trade and to inhabit a world where no woman, man or child is prostituted, a world where sex acts are not bought, sold or brokered. Why does this sound so crazy to so many people? Well, why does it sound so crazy to so many people? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's a really good question, I think. It's been so culturally dominant, this idea that the industry isn't the way it actually is. Calling it sex work instead of prostitution is is one sort of aspect of that. There's this real push to uh, legitimise the industry and sanitise it. So we don't talk about pimps anymore. We talk about managers. We don't talk about sex buyers. We talk about clients, like you were in a, in a doctor's office or something. I think it's a marketing job. Mm. It's been very successful, particularly uh, in Australia. It's been very good to speak with you. Rose Hunter. Rose is the author of the book Body Shell Girl. Rose is a survivor of 10 years in the sex industry. You can also read a more recent essay by Rose at the ABC Religion and Ethics website. Thank you very much for joining us on the program, Rose. Thank you so much for having me. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.